Our Savior stated on one occasion, Blessed are they, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And on this Lord's Day, this first day of the week, that we've had the opportunity earlier today, and also this second opportunity to, in fact, worship the great God of heaven, to express our thanks and appreciation and reverence toward Him, May we now again allow the word to be open and him to express to us some of the deepest appreciations and feelings and things that will help our life here and also lead us on the way that it should go if we would wish to entertain heaven. As you can see, we've come to the 10th lesson in our series dealing with the book of Hebrews this evening. And as we have worked our way into that book to this 8th chapter tonight, we will in fact be able to look at a few of the scenes and issues relating to the covenant that we have at least noted raised in chapter 7 earlier in our study. As always, the book of Hebrews, throughout our study, it's been our desire to merely allow the Holy Spirit to instruct and to guide us in our thinking in the way that it was presented. And just as surely as those individuals were struggling beneath the load of discouragement, struggling beneath the power and the directness of persecution and having to battle interior foes and thoughts and questions and doubts. Sometimes you and I may face the very same thing, at least in a parallel way. And it may well be Hebrews can fulfill the same need for us as it did for them to provide us with a glimmering appreciation of what it's all about. The fact that Christ paid the cost for us and made it possible by the greatness of all the superiority over Moses, over the prophets, over the angels, over Joshua, over all the Aaronic priesthood, all of it pale in comparison to what we have in Jesus. How privileged and blessed we are as Christians today. As we live in the world in which we are, no wonder we read passages in the New Testament that lift high the name of Christ and how proudly we can wear that name. In Acts 26, 28, it was Agrippa who said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In 1 Peter 4, verses 16 and 17, it was on that occasion, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. It is a name that's a glorious name. And surely as we appreciate how better the covenant is tonight, may we even have a richer appreciation and an enthralling understanding of how great that name is and the covenant that he brought about. And so, as you noticed this afternoon, in fact, we will be looking at that covenant, that great covenant spoken of especially in chapter 8. If you would, go ahead and be turning to that chapter. A few moments ago, a passage from verses 6 and 7 was read. We certainly will cast a spotlight on that in just a moment. But uh, there are other things in that chapter that we too should consider. As we begin it, you might well notice that verse number 6 expressly makes mention of a covenant. Perhaps we would do well to at least initially visit the thought, well, what is a covenant explicitly? What is being meant by the usage of that language? By, for instance, comparison to other places in the sacred text in which that word is found. So let's take a journey over the next few moments by way of introduction, familiarizing ourselves again with the concept of the covenant, and following that then we will be more anxious and ready to look at carefully why Christ's is so much better. I've tried to define it at the top using what the Hebrew or the Greek word, I should say, that occurs on this place. 
it seems to have three particular usages from time to time in the course of the Holy Scriptures. One of the ways in which that word covenant can be employed is this one. It can expressly have reference to that last will and testament. In other words, the final instructions that may be delivered in the setting forth of an inheritance. You and I, frankly, would tend to call that a person's will. But another way in which that word is sometimes employed in the Scriptures is it has reference to a binding agreement, a treaty, or an agreement, contract, if you will, between individuals. Finally, and thirdly, it can also be used to refer to that testament or covenant. That is to say, an agreement affirming the relationship into which God has entered with man. One can find instances throughout the sacred volume in which the word is employed in various ways that would relate to one of those three. In light of that third one, might I ask you how great a thought that really is. To imagine the greatness of God, how that he could speak the world into existence in the way that he did, and order it in the sublime character of his greatness. And in fact, he still had a desire to enter into a relationship with that which he has made. After all, when you and I sometimes are appreciative of individuals who are in important positions, frankly, they by the means of the talents and skills given to them have risen to positions of great authority, jurisdiction, or otherwise. It's sometimes easy for them to wish to have nothing to do with those inferior to them. It's often desirous on their part, in fact, to distance themselves in any number of ways from those who would be positioned as their inferiors. And yet here was the God of heaven, as great as he is, as awesome as he honestly and truly is, and yet he desired relationship with those who were his creatures, the pinnacle of those whom he had made. You and I, God wishes not to stand aloof from us, it's not his desire to merely be at a distance and to watch us from that place. It's his desire to have a founded, firm, thorough relationship, us with him. That thought alone is astounding. And yet, as that thought is the backdrop for Hebrews chapter 8, might I invite you to consider a number of ways throughout the scriptures in which we can see the notion of that idea of a covenant. Let's revisit the very first time in all the scriptures where that word occurs. It's in Genesis 6, verse 18. In that early stage of time, we will recall that, in fact, the human family had advanced through several generations. It was Noah that was on the biblical stage at that particular time. And as Noah was there in place, in verse 18, God speaking to him says, in relation to the covenant, that he was desirous of commanding and forming this covenant with Noah. You and I realize what that covenant involved. He had given Noah instructions for the construction of an ark. And he and the family were to go on board. The animals were to be taken. And in that context, God says, I am forming a covenant with you. Can we not already appreciate that there were obligations thus involved? On the first part, might we note that Noah had obligations. This covenant for his salvation and that of his family and the animals involved his construction of that ark and the dutiful carrying out of that work. However, God also, in that same regard, had obligations. And he purposed and intended and communicated the fact he was going to live up to them. 
there's a flood coming. We can already appreciate that God certainly kept his part of that arrangement. That agreement that had been entered into, God set the terms and Noah lived up to them. But noted yet another example. It occurs only three chapters later. Same individual. Noah again, this time after the flood. And yet when they left the confines of that ark, it was on that occasion that in chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, God again stated, Here is a covenant not only with you, Noah, but with your seed, as many as there may be. What was the covenant? I will never again destroy this world with a flood of waters as I have done. Never again. There was a covenant entered into, again, God stating his affirmation, his desire, and his intent. Never again to cover this world with a worldwide flood. In fact, he even placed a sign in the heavens to that end. You and I recognize it as the bow, the rainbow. And isn't it the case that now we have come so many millennia later and never again has there been a flood of waters like that one. Notice that on that occasion, again, as God entered into this agreement, he again stipulated the terms. Noah had nothing to do with this one. It was God affirming his intent to maintain this covenant with the human family. And he has been faithful to maintain that covenant. Consider another example. Even past those two. In Genesis 15, beginning in verse 18, we have again that word employed in a somewhat interesting fashion as it related to the covenant of the land. At that point, it would be almost a half millennium later before the seed of Abraham would inhabit that land known as Canaan. But God there called it a covenant. It was an agreement he was entering into with the seed of Abraham that your, you, your, in, your in, uh, descendants will inhabit this land. And sure enough, again, as we come to the book of Joshua, they did. Perhaps already we can gain an impression that God does not lie, and thus any arrangement or covenant or pact into which he enters from his vantage point is a certain thing on his part. Let's look at some other examples. We note somewhat later, in Exodus 24, verse 7, the law of Moses was called a covenant. Here, as the children of Israel had come to that point of Mount Sinai, and as surely as Moses had been on the mountain, to him had been delivered that law that you and I would term the law of Moses. The text says Moses read it in the audience of the people. What did he read? The covenant. He read the covenant. And they responded, All that the Lord hath said will we do. On that occasion, again, God had stipulated the arrangements. He had stipulated the agreement and the covenant. And the people had testified that they too accepted the agreement and were entering in, on that occasion at least, with the intent to keep it. It is, of course, a sadness to appreciate the rolling by of the decades and to see that they were not faithful to their side of that bargain. On more than one occasion, they had failed to keep the agreement that they had entered into with God on that occasion. Isn't it a tragedy? As you perhaps give thought to that one, isn't it significant that that special piece of furniture that was such a vital part of the tabernacle, housed in the most holy place, on which the cherubims faced each other and there was the mercy seat, but of course that chest on which it sat was called the Ark of the Covenant. 
it initially was just called the ark, but later on so many occasions we're referenced specifically as the ark of what? The covenant. Our God is a God of covenant, Nehemiah 9 tells us. He is a God who keeps covenant and mercy. And thus we should be ever mindful of the importance of covenant today. It is to be noted, again, the law of Moses termed the covenant. Notice then what occurs at the bottom of that slide. As you and I give some thought then to the covenant into which God desires man to enter today, what are the terms with which God desires to have relationship with the highest of his creation? For it is not arbitrary, and it's not selected by us, and it's not merely on our terms. It is God who, as he has done in the past, who formulates, decides, and sets forth the terms of that covenant. And of course, if you and I would desire the benefits thereof, we must also agree to meet those terms and to submit to them in obedience. It might then be the case that now we can turn our attention to Hebrews 8. For we notice again in verses 6 and 7, the inspired writer says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Might we then give some thought to Christ's covenant? It clearly has been referenced in our reading, and in fact we even saw it in some earlier passages in the Hebrew letter. In Hebrews 7 verse 22 we read this astounding passage. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. If you happen to be reading in the American Standard Translation in that verse, Hebrews 7.22, you probably notice that the last word in that verse is covenant in the American Standard rendering, whereas it's testament in, in fact, the King James Translation. One might immediately be gaining the understanding that the two words are not only closely related, but perhaps they're interchangeable. And in fact, you and I shall discover that to be the case. When you and I thus give our allegiance and our testimony to what we call the New Testament, the 27 books that close the Holy Scriptures, the New Testament, another way in which one could reference that is the New Covenant. It is a covenant. And that covenant has within it the terms that God desires and has set forth for your betterment and mine. And as we shall learn tonight, it truly is a better covenant. It is truly a better testament. And let's turn for the next few moments and look at some ways to appreciate that betterment. You'll notice one of the next things that we can see. Given God's calling the law of Moses a testament, a covenant, one now understands that just as surely as the New Testament has written and affirmed for us that that no longer is binding, there had to have been then a changing of the covenant, a changing of that testament. In fact, that statement is found in Hebrews 7. Would you read with me verse number 12? For on that occasion we read, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. A way to make reference to the changing of the testament or a changing of the covenant. The priesthood was changed. And I've highlighted for us the specifics of that changing. Isn't it true that the Levitical order and the priesthood associated with it was changed to a priestly order likened unto that of Melchizedek. That has been our study the last two Sunday evenings. But notice also that covenant 
has been changed to Christ's covenant. As we appreciate what foundational and great things took place with the coming of the Christ and with the matters that he brought about for the changing of the manner of God's covenant with the human family and the way that the human family could in fact bind a relationship to God, it does not happen like it did in Old Testament days. And thus those who seek a relationship with God on those terms are seeking what now cannot be. For God has decreed no longer is relationship with me made on those same terms any longer. Again, the terms have been changed. No wonder the human family should thus know about this new covenant, this new testimony. Notice what else you and I can quickly state. Are we in a worse position in regard to the covenant? Did God take a step backward or downward? He did not. In fact, notice that verse number 7 again, of which we just read in Hebrews 8. If the first covenant had been faultless, then there would have been no need for the second. We each are understanding of the fact that you can't improve on what is perfect. You cannot improve by definition that which is already ideal. And so if that first covenant had truly been perfect, faultless and ideal in all of the desires and particulars which man would have for having a relationship ultimately and finally with God, there would have never been a need for the second. And thus isn't it self-evident that since there has been a changing of the testimony and the testament, that surely this latter one must be a better one than that. Perhaps it goes without saying that the Old Testament was even aware of its shortcomings in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, that prophet Jeremiah on that occasion by the direction of the Holy Spirit in no uncertain terms stated that this testimony, this Old Testament, was going to give way to one better than it. The supersession of that New Testament, if you please, was foretold in the old era. That still is a timeless consideration, isn't it? The Old Testament, Moses knew it, David knew it, all of the prophets knew it, and yet some in our world today refuse to admit it, that that Old Testament was only temporary. God had something better in mind. No wonder in Ephesians 1 verse 4 we read about from the foundation of the worlds and even before, God had a plan in mind to draw the human family to himself and to do so fully, completely, by the bridging of his Son. In regard then to what was brought about by Christ and this new covenant, this new testament, you'll notice easily with me then in Hebrews 8.13, the closing verse to this 8th chapter of Hebrews, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The inspired writer thus firmly and absolutely asserting then that that old covenant has now been made old. It's decaying, waxing away and deteriorating. He has taken it away and now there is a pristine, pure and perfect covenant in its place. This New Testament then to which you and I are able to come, the Hebrew writer has so much to say about it. What might be some other things that should be stated with regard to this covenant? The language of verse 6 begins again like this. But now... There's that contrast so often then to now. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. In what ways are the ministry of Christ more excellent? In what way is it more ideal? 
may I suggest a few things that will consume our thinking for the next several moments. This better ministry of Christ, this more excellent ministry. Perhaps first of all might we notice the attitude and the disposition that blood has in it. Might we in fact somewhat directly state it like this. There was blood, of course, in the ritual sacrifices of the Old Testament. We've often made note of that in previous weeks in our study of both Hebrews and Romans. But as one gives thought to that blood, what kind of blood was it? What was it able to accomplish? And what was it unable to do? Surely it was not Moses' blood. It wasn't Noah's blood. It was not David's blood. It wasn't Aaron's blood. You see, it wasn't even the blood of a human at all. It was the blood of an animal. An animal that was not made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. An animal that then could not come to know God on the terms desirous of Him. It was an animal that had nowhere near the capability mentally of even any of us in this room. It was an animal. And it was that animal's blood that was utilized. First of all, what then distinguishes that to this new era? What kind of blood is the central era today? It's not my blood, and it's not your blood either. It certainly isn't an animal's blood. When we appreciate then what kind and whose blood is it, of course the Hebrew writer is quick to remind us, it's the blood of Christ. And that blood that was shed, infinitely greater and more powerful than the blood of any animal, For again, as the Hebrew writer shall be quick to note, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, Hebrews 10.4. Furthermore, they were unable to make the consciences of the comers thereunto perfect, Hebrews 10.1. And thus, when we think about the blood of the covenant, the very language of Hebrews 9.14, notice then how the blood fits into that discussion. In fact, the writer on that occasion puts it in language like this. Beginning in verse 11, it reads, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Here lifted so high is the thought of the blood of Christ. Notice the blood of bulls and goats and calves, the sprinkling of ashes, all of that that took place beneath the Old Testament era by command of God again. But he was looking forward to a time when a far better covenant than that one would be in place. A covenant founded on the fundamental element of the blood of His Son. And in regard to that blood, verse 14 still says, able to purge your conscience from dead works. As Hebrews 10.1 states, the old covenant couldn't do that with its blood. But notice what else comes so readily by virtue of those thoughts. In Hebrews 10 verse 29, we then have a direct and explicit reference to the blood of the covenant. The language is so penetrating because it reads in part with a rhetorical question. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God 
and who hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Isn't it at the same time both lovingly comforting and challengingly profound to hear the Hebrew writer say, Of how much sore punishment shall anyone be thought worthy who trods underfoot the Son of God and does what else? Verse 29, counts the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. Today it certainly upon anyone with a degree of reflectiveness to think about the blood that Christ shed, but yet a man or woman today who considers that blood trivial, unimportant, insignificant, perhaps that which is unworthy of one's attention, the God of heaven dispatched his Son to this place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And yet for anyone to look with despite upon the blood of the covenant the blood upon which this testament is founded. Notice he says, of how much sorer punishment shall that person be deserving? I suppose you and I could recoil in thinking about trying to answer it. If those beneath the Old Testament suffered death when they looked lightly upon that covenant and failed to measure up to the dispensing of God's grace by virtue of it, of how much sore punishment will any person at judgment be faced when God can look at them and say, you treated lightly the blood of my son. The covenant that I gave his life to make possible for you to be in heaven and you ignored it, you neglected it, you treated it lightly. To give that kind of thinking any degree of measure leads us to understand, doesn't it, that it's the blood of the covenant This New Testament, you see, isn't an arbitrary. It was only made possible with His blood. No wonder the covenant then was so vital. No wonder the Old Testament prophets looked forward to the day it would be a reality, though they didn't live to see it, though they passed away from the earthly scenes of this existence before Christ and this covenant ever came to be. They looked forward to it. 1 Peter 1 verses 9 through 13 remind us that they looked longingly into the reality of what you and I now have. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 will close in language very similar to that. And yet, doesn't that paint a rather picturesque scene? As bold as Jeremiah was, as powerful as Isaiah was as a spokesman for God, they never had what you and I now do. They longingly looked forward to it. Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 40 verses 1 to 3 about that day when the New Testament would be in order. And Isaiah never lived to see it. That does give us an idea of the privilege we have as Christians. And doesn't it also paint a picture about the sadness of those who have been faithful but who no longer are? They have chosen to walk aside from the avenue of faithfulness to the Savior. And they are thus counting the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. The Hebrew writer was speaking in a parallel fashion concerning them, wasn't he? And later, didn't Peter do the same? He said it had been better for them never to have known the way of truth than to have known it and turned aside from it. Oh, how tears should flow from each of us in consideration about what significance is attached to the covenant. However, as you notice also on that slide, there's so much more the author has placed and packed into just a very few words. In verse number 6 again he says, By how much also he is the mediator 
of a better covenant. Mediator. The lovely thought of a go-between. One who is able, in fact, to play the role of making peace between two contrary sides. God is holy, sinless, and perfect. You and I are mortal, flawed, and filled with iniquity apart from Him. And yet we are thus in need of one who could serve as a go-between. And Christ is a mediator. Noah was never a mediator. Moses, by directness, could never have been fully called one. David, not a chance. Solomon, no. And yet God sent His own Son that He might be a mediator. For, of course, being perfect God, He also lived here in the flesh, Hebrews 2.14, and could thus see your side and mine and yet fully well knowing the justice of God. He could put in place a covenant whereby our needs were met and God's demands were satisfied. Both sides could thus be have peace. That's the New Testament. And thus all of those in our world, both then and now, who try to make peace with God through any other means, Confucius, Hindu, Buddha, you name it. They're all trotting on ice that's not only thin, it's non-existent. One cannot make peace with God on terms that he hasn't set forth. For you and I are human. He needed, in fact, as he sent his son, it was through him that that mechanism was provided, whereby you and I could have peace by virtue of the mediator. Paul afforded that same thought, didn't he, in 1 Timothy 2.5. There's one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus. Those faults challenge us then so mightily to notice that this notion of a mediator will play a central role in chapter 9. For instance, in verse 15, which follows the text we had read a moment ago, it says, And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. There's that New Testament, New Covenant again. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. There is that exquisite thought of eternal inheritance. You and I, in the concourse of life in this flesh, may inherit some things from our parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts, but here it's an eternal inheritance. We understand greatly to which that refers, that beautiful home in the pristine place called heaven. That eternal inheritance, notice, is not for everybody. It is true that many in our world think it's for everybody, but it isn't. In fact, we know that inheritance is for those declared so by virtue of a will. A testament, taking us back to that first definition of the word covenant earlier, I wonder if there is then a direct correspondence between those that will be the recipients of the inheritance and those that have relationship to this covenant that we've defined so far. We'll need to discuss that more fully, and we shall do that in just a moment. But as you notice how that slide closes with me, it is the case that that correspondence is so readily noted for us in Hebrews or in Romans 8 verse 3 that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, for sin, to take care for you and for me what you and I were unable to deal with before. This covenant is so rich. It's so enthralling to even consider it that God would desire a relationship with me and with you, not just collectively as the church, but you and me personally. 
That's why He allows us to wear the name of His Son, the second member of the Godhead. And that's why you and I can also notice the last set of thoughts on that slide. To lead us in that direction, let me see if we can bring us full circle tonight. We began our lesson by casting the spotlight on that third definition of the covenant. That one that merely is that desirous binding or agreement between God and man. And we noticed a number of Old Testament examples, such as Moses, such as Noah. But as one then comes to also not forget that first definition, remember, there are places in the Scriptures in which the word covenant has reference to that last will and testament that a person might share as his final instructions to dispose of his things on the occasion of his death. It is in that regard I'd like for us to come near the close of our lesson tonight. In Hebrews chapter 9, it is that aspect of the covenant that really is the one that is focused upon. So far, we have read verses 11 through 15. Let's now continue with verse 16. As surely as the covenant has been a central aspect of the discussion so far, it now says, For where a testament is, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. The American Standard reads it, There must of necessity be the death of him that made it. And verse 17 then says, For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. That's a self-evident truth to you and me, isn't it? It doesn't matter how exquisite a person's will might be. It doesn't matter how detailed, how specific, how well written it is, the grammar that's employed, the finest lawyer that may have aided to affirm it is real. Until the person is dead, it's meaningless and it has no power at all. It's only after that person has passed away in death that then there is the opportunity for that will to be effective and for it to be forceful. And notice in this very place, that's the thought that the Hebrew writer tied to and utilized for you and for me. We so far have noted that there was a change in the priesthood. He stated there was a change in the will or in the law. Now we come to ask more fully about that latter part of the meaning of the word will. You see, when Jesus died, that allowed another will to be put in place, a different will. It allowed another testament to be put in force. And sure enough, as we notice some of the passages about how that makes this so different from the Old Testament, we call the law of Moses, Moses never died to make that real. In fact, Moses was alive before, or in fact, while that law was already in force, wasn't it? So in reality, when you and I term it the law of Moses, we're using that to state Moses gave it. He was the thoroughfare, the channel through whom God dispensed that to the Jewish nation. With Christ, it is different. It is literally his last will and testament. That means absolutely and certainly there shall never be another. For isn't it true in Hebrews 13.20, this is called the everlasting covenant. If it's everlasting, that means it can't be succeeded by another. It is the final way in which human beings have an opportunity to have relationship with God. There will be no other, and there will be no modification of it either. For after all, isn't it also true that once a person dies, you can't change his will. You can't go in and rewrite it once he's passed away. Only he could do it. With the Savior now having died at Calvary, 
the wheel has finished. No, no changes, no alterations, no appendices, no supersessions, no changes at all to the last will and testament. And thus, when Christ died, he nailed that old law to the cross, Colossians 2.14. We now can see the fullness of that picture. The new law is in place. Two wheels cannot be enforced for the same person at the same time. A simple fact of jurisprudence in law affirms that truth. Here, we had the one law now coming into place. Perhaps as you give some thought to all that that involves, that last will and testament, when thus the Lord died at Golgotha, at Calvary. We notice indeed three days later on that Sunday morning, that first day of the week, He was resurrected. Not too many days later, He ascended to the Father. We then find on that day of Pentecost, the ultimate and final probation of that will, the execution of it took effect. We are aware today again that there comes a time after a person passes when the executors will administer the estate and on that occasion, the will becomes effective. Christ's will became effective on the day of Pentecost. The apostles probate it, put it in order by execution that day, and it shall forever be so until the end of time. This is the last will and testament. How are you, how's your life in regard to the last will and testament? Have you submitted wholeheartedly to it? Do you follow it as the one and only way to enjoy that covenant relationship with God? There is no other. Feelings are insufficient. Emotions are immaterial. The other thoughts of one's life will not accomplish it. Any other kind of religious service will not make it possible. In some ways, those are irrelevant. As we noted near the outset of the lesson, a covenant involves obligations. It is so with this one. One can't just claim that he or she is thus subservient to the covenant you illustrate subservience by doing what the covenant asserts. Notice that's what happens with a will. If a person writes a will and allows certain individuals to take certain things, when that happens, the will has been executed. The rewards and promises of this will are such that the execution affords great benefits and blessings to those who are the inheritors. I suppose then, as you and I think about what a will makes possible, inheritance from someone, you and I have the opportunity to inherit from God. Inherit from God. The overruler of the whole universe to inherit from Him. But you must be a child. You must be in His family. Are you in His family? You can't inherit from Him if you're not. Can you call Him Father? Galatians 4, 6. Can you refer to Him as the one who has allowed you to be born into His family? Nicodemus was anxious to learn about that. Tonight, we could help one or more also in that way. If you are not a member of the body of Christ, why do you delay? If you know that Jesus died for you, if you know there's sin in your life, but you know now the way to get rid of it, you know something about this plan of salvation that demands your belief, your repentance, your confession, your baptism, why not do that tonight? Why not then be able to pillow your head in security and safety? knowing that your name is written in the book of life. If we could be of assistance to you in that initial obedience or to rededicate your life to the cause of Christ, don't delay tonight. The prayers of saints are admonished in Acts chapter 8 as well as James chapter 5. 
and we'd be honored and happy to pray on your behalf. We would only ask you to let us know in what way we can be of assistance. If tonight you're subject to the gospel call of invitation, rest your hopes on the covenant, the last will and testament of the Son of God. And if we can help you do that, why not tonight, as together we stand and as we sing.